Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would see in your Son our rock, our vine, our security, our fruit. Amen. Every nation and people group has symbols, whether metaphorical or physical. We have symbols and images that actually explain who we are, sort of like embodiments of our identity. And so if you were to say, what's the like, symbol, the image, the picture of America, you would jump to something like the Statue of Liberty. That the sort of essence and identity of this nation is a place of freedom for those who were previously opp- oppressed, a place of new opportunity. You might jump into something like Fourth of July fireworks for the same reason. Or perhaps you would point to Washington, D.C. and look at Congress or look at the White House or the Supreme Court building. We have symbols that are like identity markers depicting who we are, what we value. The Jewish nation was no different. And there were several that occur over and over and over again in the scriptures and are worth sort of getting our minds around so that we understand what they're depicting when they come up. One of them is one that shoots through all of our readings today, and that is the symbol of the people as being God's vineyard. That's a weird one for us, because most of us probably don't think in terms of vineyards. But this symbol is a prominent symbol in the Old Testament that explains who they are. We are God's vineyard. There's others, like the symbol, we are God's sheep and he is our shepherd, is a prominent symbol. The temple itself is a prominent symbol that we are the place where God lives. We are the place where true worship occurs. The one we're going to see the most today, though, is the vineyard imagery. It's the one that Isaiah 5 is based on, this stunning little poem that is the metaphor of the vineyard of the people of God. Listen to it one more time. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This stunning little poem is not a happy little poem. It is God saying to his vineyard, I'm done with you. I've had enough. What's the point of all this weeding and pruning and trimming? What's the point of the sweat and the tears and the labor if the fruit is terrible? The metaphor, in this metaphor, the grapes are the actual actions and character of the people. God wanted them to produce certain things, and he's looking for those particular things. He's looking for justice. He's looking for honesty. He's looking for compassion for people who take care of the poor. 
He's looking for purity and holiness, sincere worship. These are the things that Isaiah 1-5 through list that God was specifically looking for out of this vineyard. But he said, every time I turned and I looked at this vineyard, all that I saw was bloodshed, dishonesty, injustice, people taking advantage of the poor, running them over to add a little bit more to their bank accounts. All that I saw was false worship. And God eventually says, I've got everything invested here but it's not producing. And so I'm going to back off and let you to your own devices. I'm going to abandon you. And if this is what you want, this is what you can have. It's not a pleasant story. There's a lot that's worth wrestling in this little parable. The parable reveals things that are actually really good and encouraging. It reveals God's patience. Vineyards take a lot of time. You don't throw the vine in the ground and get it immediately coming out. When you talk about how long it takes the vine to mature and you talk about the fermentation process and you talk about the aging process, this is a long-term effort. And it reveals God's patience. This image of his people as a vineyard reveals how long he's willing to work. It reveals that he's not distant. He's not absent-minded. He's not some deistic God in the sky who has nothing to do with us. Somebody who's actually building a vineyard is on his hands and knees, fingernails bleeding, building walls. My family in Texas were rose nurturers, and there was this picture in one of the old rose catalogs of how to splice a rose, and it was my grandfather's hands in that picture in the catalog. And you look at the hands of people who've worked with vines and flowers, And you see hands that have actually borne the cost of the labor. God's involved in the history, close to his people, working with them in their lives. The parable reveals his intimacy and his willingness to work with us. The parable reveals, though, that God has expectations for us. It's not do whatever you want and just go be happy. God actually wants things from his people. He wants people who take care of the poor. He wants justice and honesty and purity. He has strong desires for what comes out of his people. The parable reveals that. And the parable, in a very, very hard way, also reveals that when people, and we could be talking about a church here or individuals, when people, year after year after year, refuse God's design, refuse the thing that he's wanting them to produce. When people reject them, eventually he says, I'm not going to protect you any longer. If this is what you want, you can have it. If you want a society of greed, you can have a society of greed. If you want a society of injustice, all your little decisions for personal injustice to get yourself above somebody else, if you want that to rule your world, you can have it. That eventually he doesn't override his people, but allows them to have exactly what they want. And so there's a point when he looks at people, even after this long patience, and he says, if this is what you choose, you can have it. And he withdraws, and what was a lovely vineyard becomes wilderness. Churches that he withdraws from lose their vibrancy in their life and their meaning for existence. 
individuals that he withdraws from lose the idea that they can be a fountain of joy and peace to others and instead become a black hole that's utterly unfillable no matter how much gets poured into it. What was a beautiful vineyard becomes a wilderness. It's a powerful little poem and one that ought to haunt us as we grapple with it. Psalm 80 trades in a lot of the same images, but interestingly, Psalm 80 sort of moves between all of them. If you look at the first verse, it opens with the sheep image. Hear, O shepherd of Israel, you that lead Joseph like a sheep. It opens with that image of the people of God, and then it shifts in the very second clause to actually the temple imagery. Show yourself also, you that sit upon the cherubim. Those two angelic beings above the Ark of the Covenant, God's seat, it's moving from all of the different images that God uses of his relationship with his people. But the psalm is dominated by this vineyard imagery. And you see in verse 8, the vineyard speaking back to God. It's so intriguing because in this particular instance, and I think it's the only one in the Bible, the vineyard responds And the vineyard is responding after the vineyard has been let go. God said, you don't want me? Eventually, I release you. And the vineyard looks back at God and says, wait, we didn't actually want this. We didn't actually want you to be absent. Look at the story. It reminds God, the vineyard says, you brought a vine from Egypt. You made room for us. You pushed other nations out of the way. You planted us. You, You made it beautiful. But then look at verse 12. Why then have you broken down its hedge so that all those who go by pluck off its grapes? Why have you done this? Why have you let us go? If Isaiah 5 reminds us that God is patient, working with his people, reminds us that God actually desires good fruit and is willing to put in years and years and years of his own sweat and labor for this to occur, but that eventually won't override people and allows them the fruit of their own choices. If Isaiah 5 reminds us of that, Psalm 80 reminds us that there is no place that is not too far gone where we cannot cry out to God for mercy again. Even the vineyard that's been abandoned can say, don't you remember me? Come back, come back. Even the vineyard throws back in God's face the very blessing he gave to his people at the very beginning. In number six, God told Aaron, this is how you bless the people. And he gave this beautiful blessing about the peace of God coming upon his people and God's face shining upon his people. That was the blessing that Aaron was supposed to use over the people. And you look in the refrain of Psalm 80, the refrain that occurs in verse 3 and 7 and 19, and it says, Restore us again. Show the light of your countenance, and we shall be whole. We shall have shalom. We shall have peace. The vineyard is saying to God, You gave us this blessing. Give it back to us. Why have you taken it away? That idea that there is no place that is not too far gone to cry out for mercy is one that we see explicitly in Deuteronomy 30. Where Moses says to the people, when you've rejected your God, when you've refused him, and you find yourself in exile with everything broken in your life, in that moment, if you cry out to him and say, I'll turn back to you, I'll leave this sin behind, I'll turn back to you, even that moment in exile is not too late. And God will bring you back, and he will restore your nation, and it will be more than it ever was before, better and fuller and thicker. 
There is no place that is too far gone, that passage says. We see that pattern in Judges, where the people go deeper and deeper into the most heinous and egregious sins. And yet each time, when they experience the fruit of their own choices and are broken by the fruit of their own choices, when they cry for mercy, God says, yes, we'll try again. It's like his patience never reaches an end. And Psalm 80 is a reminder that this little vineyard that's been abandoned because of its own choices can be recalled. Restore us again, O God. Restore us again. In Matthew 21, Jesus picks up this metaphor of the vineyard. And I wanted to look at those because we're going to use some of the things that come out of Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80 as we move forward. But also just because I want you to feel the weight of this image that was so integral to the way the Jews thought of themselves. When Jesus tells this parable, he's not picking some random story. He's actually picking a story that marks their own identity, that we are the vineyard of the Lord, that God expects certain things from us, that God has the right to stop protecting this vineyard if we reject him. This is built into the people. But he gives the parable a twist because this parable is not so much about the vineyard. It's a parable about the people who are actually working in the vineyard, the people who've leased it from the master and who are in control of it. And we see in this parable the basic reality that God gives this sort of authority, this sort of influence to certain people. They actually have power over this vineyard. But that in giving them that authority and that influence, God actually expects certain things from them. I put you there to help in my work so that the vineyard produces fruit for me. But these people are given this influence, this power, this authority, and what have they done with it? It is all about self-fulfillment, self-aggrandizement. It is all about using this place of authority for themselves. And so God sends messengers, the people who come and ask for the fruit, the prophets in the metaphor. He sends messengers to them to remind them that they have been given this place so that they might actually bring the fruit back to God. And yet they reject and they kill those people. And they're about to reject and kill the very Son of God. And at the end of Jesus' parable, he says to them that you will be judged and removed from your position for this. It's a prophetic proclamation against a group of men that he is looking eye to eye with. And he's saying, you were given authority over God's vineyard. You were given influence over God's vineyard. And God warned you generation after generation after generation that you were not put there for your own self-interest, but you were put there to bring fruit to God. And in every generation, you have rejected God's messengers. And you, men standing in front of me, are culpable of the same. When John the Baptist came, you rejected him. And now I'm standing here as the son, and you're about to kill me. God will remove you from this and give this authority and influence to someone else. That prophetic word, of course, comes true. Forty years later, the Romans march in, destroy Jerusalem, and every bit of authority that those chief priests and leaders of Jerusalem had was eradicated. And the only people over the household of God going forward were the apostles. That prophetic word came true to those men in that moment. It's weird when you're looking at this very specific historical moment and say, what does that have to do with me? I don't live back then, and I thankfully didn't have that authority. 
I don't have to worry. At least I can duck this one. Isaiah 5 is hard, but I can duck this one. But the reality is, is that God gives all of us spheres of authority. Formal and informal. Big and little. Whether amongst our friends or in our families or in our work, God gives us all spheres of authority. And this parable makes it very clear that those spheres of authority are not there so that we get what we want out of life. They're not there so that other people serve us and so that we get puffed up or so that we get our way or so that we get control. Those spheres of authority there aren't so that we can make our home run just the way we want it to run so that we're comfortable and nothing bothers us. Those spheres of authority there are there so that we would enable those people to bear fruit for God. The question that arises out of this parable is, does my presence, does my presence amongst the people that I have sphere of influence over, does it make it more likely that they're honest? Does it make it more likely that they show compassion for those who are hurting? Does it make it more likely that they care about justice? And all of us need to be challenged by this question because all of us have spheres of authority and all of us are tempted by the temptation to use those spheres of authority just to serve ourselves, to make things easier for me. And this parable, even though it's set in a very specific historical situation, is an arrow at all of our hearts because it says, what do you do with what God's given you? Do you produce the fruit he calls for, or is it all about yourself? At the end of this parable of accusation, and by the way, if you were to say what got Jesus killed, you would point to three things. I mean, from a worldly standpoint, the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, and this parable. Because this is the point when the leaders of Israel look at him and say, this man has to be gotten rid of. This cannot keep going on. Because if he keeps talking like this in the midst of the temple, the people are going to riot against us. The people are going to chuck us out. At the tail end of this accusation, Jesus shifts his metaphor in a strange way. This is verse 42. He says, Have you never read in the scriptures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He shifts his metaphor from the vineyard to the temple. This is why at the beginning I mentioned that there was more than just the vineyard. There's the sheep and the temple and all these different ways the nation conceived of themselves. And you look how easily, you see it in Psalm 80, they move back and forth from one of those images to another. Here he shifts from vineyard to temple. And he's quoting Psalm 118. He's quoting Psalm 118 to let them see and understand this moment that there would be a cornerstone of the temple that the leaders and builders would reject. But that would be the one that God chose to build everything on. He's using the scriptures to explain this moment to them. Psalm 118 said this would occur. And that weird shift as he justifies his statement to the leaders, that weird shift, I think, offers encouragement to us. Because in all this talk about the vineyard, in all this talk about the vineyard, it is so easy to become discouraged and convicted. God expects us to take care of the poor. It's over and over and over in the scriptures. And most of us go, I don't even know how to begin doing that. God expects honesty. And most of us go, yeah, I'm honest, except for when I get pinned in a corner. And then a little bit of twisting is okay. God expects justice. And we go, yeah, I want justice. 
But in my personal life, I actually like to get my own way more than I like justice. God expects compassion, and you go, but not on him, because you know what he did. My point is, is that if we listen to these parables honestly, there is so much conviction that can rise up rightly in our souls. Where we look at the fruit of our own life and we go, there is so much that I have not done that I'm called to do. Anger and greed and lust and dishonesty and cruelty and gossip and slander and selfishness. The things that rise out of us instead of the pure fruit that God longs for. There's so much of it. Wild grapes. Sour grapes. This is why it's so significant that Jesus looked at his disciples and he didn't say to them, be a better vineyard. In John 15, at the Last Supper, he looked at his disciples and he actually said, oh, no, I am actually the vine. I am. He was saying the same thing using the vineyard imagery that he says here to the leaders. I am the cornerstone. And the point in both of these statements is that Jesus is reminding us of the fact that he actually did what we cannot do. He was the faithful vine who bore the true fruit for God. Care for the poor, compassion, honesty, justice, purity, holiness, righteousness, the whole slate of fruit borne by him perfectly. And the stunning thing that he says is that if you are grafted into me, that means it's yours too. All that fruit that I bore, that's yours. If you're built on me, all that fruit that I bore, it's yours. In both of these images, he's pointing, I am the vine, I am the cornerstone to the fact that he is the one who fulfills this expectation. But that because we are grafted into him and founded upon him, his fulfillment becomes our fulfillment. In this unbelievable reversal of fortunes, we are given what we could never do. All of the goodness is suddenly ours. And because his life is coming through us in that moment, we are given the ability to actually begin to step into that fruit with him. It's beautiful that we are reminded of this on a baptismal Sunday because according to Romans 6, Galatians 3, Colossians 2, it is in baptism that we are actually grafted into Christ. It is in baptism that we are actually founded upon him. This is the moment when Felicity's life is actually filled with the life of Jesus, when all of that that he has done becomes hers. It's beautiful. And so for each of y'all, as you look at the moments where you have failed to bear this fruit, look back, though, with a greater moment where the Lord Jesus fulfilled it for you and gave it to you. Amen.